I'm Ece Özdemiroğlu. I'm Sabina Apetz. And I'm Jill Duggan. Welcome to season two of Join the Dots. We've spent our careers giving advice on the environment and learned that choices are never straightforward. But working through the complexity is rewarding. Here in each episode, we explore the issues surrounding an everyday choice to help you decide what's best for your health, wallet and our planet. You can find more information about this and other episodes on our website, jointhedotspodcast.com. And we'd love to hear from you on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. On 28th of February 2022, IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, published its report on impacts of climate change, our vulnerabilities to it and how we can adapt. They issued a stark warning that climate change is already happening and humans have already caused irreversible changes to nature. They also made unflinchingly clear that we are running out of time to avert catastrophic change and to ensure that our planet remains livable. These are stark and dramatic words by mostly scientists who are not given to dramatic statements. In this episode, we want to talk about what this means for our planet, our health and our wallets, as the strapline of our podcast says. Also, supported by this information, how can we make decisions that are better for our households, businesses and policies? Perhaps most importantly, can we adapt to climate change in a way that creates a greener, cleaner and kinder world? We're joined today by Catherine Brown, OBE, who is the Director of Climate Change and Evidence for the Wildlife Trusts in the UK. Thank you for being here, Catherine. Thanks, Sachi. Catherine has been in her post with the Wildlife Trust since the middle of last year, but she's been working in this area for almost 20 years, the last 10 of which was with the UK Climate Change Committee. And before then, she worked on international negotiations and carbon budgets, as well as adaptation for the UK Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. Catherine, before we go into the details of who IPCC is and how can we adapt to climate change, etc., can we start with what are your key messages are to our listeners? Yes. I mean, the thing, obviously, that is on everybody's minds at the moment as we're recording this early on in March is that, you know, we're seeing a series of, of global events unfold at the moment that, that are fairly catastrophic and that are very worrying. So whenever we turn on the news, we're seeing the horrendous conflict in, in Ukraine unfolding. We're seeing, as well as that, rising costs of living in the UK. And then we've had this report, as you said, Eche, the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report out at the end of February, which painted a really bleak picture, actually, of climate change impacts globally over the next few years. And we've seen coming for a while that the 2020s are really a, a balancing point beyond which we could see an escalating global catastrophe on climate and, and geopolitical issues as well going into the future. But we could see another direction of travel where we actually start moving into a more sustainable and more positive future environmentally and socially and politically. And really, it feels more and more that we're coming to that point of decision where we either go one way or the other, which is quite frightening for a lot of people, but needs to be discussed and talked about. And we need to talk about the actions that need to be taken to make sure that we're taking the more positive path. 
briefly, what is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and what does it do? This isn't their first report, is it? It's a good question, Sabine, because most people who haven't worked in climate change before and haven't interacted with the Intergovernmental Panel would probably think of it as a government-led initiative or a political initiative. But the really important thing to note about the IPCC is it is independent of global governments. It is a group of hundreds of scientists from across the world, so policy neutral and independent. And for this latest report, we had over 250 people contributing from over 65 countries around the world. And what the IPCC does is on a cycle of every five to seven years or so, that group comes together and brings together all of the latest scientific knowledge that we have about how the climate is changing, how it might change in the future, what we know about the impacts of that, both that are happening now and we expect to happen in the future, and what we can do about it, both through preparing for the effects of climate change through adaptation and trying to reduce the future impacts of climate change through mitigation, through reducing emissions. So this latest report, which came out at the end of February, is, is the second of a three-part series that's, that's coming out through this year, looking at the impacts of climate change and climate change adaptation. So it's, it's a huge tome, you know, it's over 2,000 pages of analysis, roughly. but there are some really good summaries that have been produced. And part of our jobs working climate change, and for me working in the natural environment, is to really understand what that report is telling us both about the urgency of action, but what we can do in our jobs, but but as individuals as well, to try and help to adapt to climate change. So what do you do with that information in your job, for example? So part of my role is to summarise it for other people. So I, as, as you mentioned at the beginning, I work for the Wildlife Trusts. And the trusts are actually 46 different independent charities around the UK and the Isle of Man and Alderney. So each is its own independent charity. So wherever you live in the country, there is a wildlife trust that covers your area. And I work in the central charity, the Royal Society of Wildlife Trusts. And part of my role as director of climate change is to communicate all of that scientific information out to the trusts and out to our members as well, members of the public all around the country to try and explain what that report is telling us. So that's part of my job is to be that conduit because obviously most people are not going to sit down and read a 2,000 page technical report. But also part of my role is to then think about what does that science and that evidence mean for our strategic priorities over the next few years? for the level of urgency that we're giving to this area of work and what does it mean for our advocacy work for government as well. So we we tend to think of climate change as a separate topic, if you like, that we work on, you know, over to the side, but actually climate change is integrated into almost every policy that we look at, particularly certainly every policy related to the natural environment, land management, farming, forestry, all of the things that the wildlife trusts are very centrally involved with. So that's part of my job day to day as well, is to work out what what needs to happen off the back of this report. And, you know, as we've seen from the media coverage of the report, it is incredibly concerning what's coming out of the IPCC. So what kind of risk the most urgent ones that we need to think about and integrate? There's there's a difference between the global risks and the UK risks. So, So globally, the IPCC report is looking at global risks. And what it has said this time around, which are the most concerning parts really, are that the level of risk overall and the level of impact that we're seeing is is higher than was previously estimated. So the impacts that are already happening across the globe on the natural environment, on people, on infrastructure, are worse than than was previously predicted. That was a really key message. 
And it really does highlight the natural environment very strongly. The latest report saying that there are what we would call hard limits to adaptation. And what that means is there is only so much climate change at the rate it's happening that specific vulnerable places on in the world, natural habitats can cope with. And over that point, they are not going to be able to persist and they will collapse. And there really isn't any way back from that. These are irreversible changes. And there isn't really much that we can do to adapt to those habitats once that point is reached. And the IPCC report highlighted tropical coral reefs, Arctic ecosystems and some coastal ecosystems as well. Now, we already knew that these areas were very, very vulnerable to what is happening to climate change. But the report just makes that even clearer. So those are the real areas by far highest priority where really we're looking at, you know, there is there's very little we can do in terms of adaptation. We can still do things. But actually what we're talking about is once we pass a certain level of warming, those habitats are likely to collapse and disappear. At the UK, in the UK, we also do a cycle of national risk assessments every five years. That's called the UK Climate Change Risk Assessment. And that's one of the provisions in the Climate Change Act that the government has to produce these. And for the last few years, the Climate Change Committee, where actually works and, and where I worked until recently, has been producing an independent assessment to provide to government as the basis for that assessment. And the most recent one, which came out last year, gives eight priority risk areas, four of which are in the natural environment again. So risks to terrestrial and freshwater habitats and species, risks to soil health. Soil and water is such a critical component of all of our underlying ecosystems. Can be easily forgotten when you're thinking about you know, the things that you see day to day outside, but really important. Risks to natural carbon stores. So what that means is woodlands and peatlands, as well as other high carbon habitats like salt marsh and coastal areas. Uh, and risks to agriculture and forestry productivity as well. So we're obviously seeing a lot in the news at the minute about food security, about improving our own resilience in our UK food system, but that food system is at risk from climate change as well. So those are some really key priority areas where we know that the level of action underway at the moment is not enough to cope with the increasing risk from climate change. Catherine, you've hinted at a couple key issues that I think it's helpful to be more explicit about. I mean, sometimes I hear from people, not my fellow scientists so much, but the general public, that they still think we can make choices between nature and our economy and nature and survival. And that understanding of how embedded and dependent we are, that we're part of ecosystems, not separate from them, is an important point. Would you like to um, address that a little bit? Yeah, and I hear the same things as well. And we've seen this, particularly with climate change adaptation, over the last, how long have I been working on it? 15 years plus. It tends to always be overridden by the priority of the day. So we've seen the last 10 years, we think crisis after crisis, priority after priority has hit us. We've had a global recession. We've had Brexit. We've had covid we're now seeing increasing global instability closer to home. It's not that this this is new, the sort of action that we're seeing in Ukraine, but it's certainly much closer to the UK than, say, the crisis in Syria has felt or the crisis in Ethiopia. And these are very, very challenging, difficult and tragic circumstances that we're having to work in. But what tends to happen when you're working in an area like climate change adaptation is it gets pushed to the side. 
because it's felt to be a long-term thing that we can come back to later. And you're absolutely right, Sabine, all of these things are connected. There's been a lot of commentary already looking at the current conflict, looking at COVID, that makes this point very clearly that these things are being made worse because of our dependence on fossil fuels and because of our exploitation of the natural environment. And it's not that these are the causes of these things, but they are certainly accelerators of those things, if you like. And the less we do on protecting nature and protecting our own resilience in the face of climate hazards in the future, the worse these issues will be in the future. And that understanding that everything is connected is often made more challenging by a very short-termism approach to politics, which we've tended to see in the UK over the last few years, and this resurgence of populism, which we've also seen over the last 10 years, which doesn't fit, obviously, well against an idea that you need to be addressing long-term change and you need to be addressing damage and environmental loss as part of your economic and your social and your geopolitical agenda as well. It's funny, isn't it, how individuals appreciate nature so much when it comes to their own en- enjoyment. I mean, with the COVID, we all talked about how important our local parks were, let alone a sort of pristine nature away from people. But when we go into sort of making decisions for our household or for our jobs, we tend to put that aside and put money and financial returns and profits first. And I think we're all working to change that mindset. There's an interesting quote from Inger Andersen, who's the director of United Nations Environment Programme in the launch of this IPCC report. And she says, nature can be our saviour, but only if we save it first. So that was very poignant and worth repeating. So I guess the next real question is that what can we do about climate change? And I quite like to explore first what we mean by we, because I have a bit of an issue of putting a lot of responsibility on individual actions. Of course, we must do what we can. We must switch off the lights. We must boil the kettle with just enough water that we need. We must um, involve in our local communities to look after our parks. We must ask questions to people who we buy food from, where the food comes from, how it's processed, etc. Loads of things that we covered in various uh, episodes of this podcast. But we're not just consumers, we're also citizens and we're campaigners. And We're not only responsible parties as individuals. There are businesses with responsibilities and there are governments with a lot of responsibilities to lead, to make these changes, to put the systems in place so our individual actions can multiply and grow. So with that understanding of who we are, is that, do you agree with that first? First, <laughs> I can see you guys, are, you're nodding, but obviously we're doing an audio piece. Do you agree with that definition of who we are? Yes, you make a really good point because we, a lot of these discussions, which I see on social media, in the media, on the news, when we're having debates about the best course of action, we're having a debate at the minute in the UK where we're about to see the Prime Minister announce a new short-term energy policy as a reaction to what's happening that's expected in the next few days. And you see all this reaction to it. It is the government's role to ensure that the thing that benefits the country and the population is done, even where an individual might not do that themselves. And the reason I bring that up is if you look at some of the discussions about, say, energy policy, if you bring in these populist arguments that we need to start importing a lot more gas from other places. We need to start using our coal reserves because energy prices have shot up and people are suffering. And actually, it's all down to renewables. 
that argument, A, does not stand up, which we know from the evidence, but it is government's role to ensure that we are doing the right long-term actions on energy policy for the environment and for the climate long-term. And part of that is protecting people who are now unable to afford heating bills. And it's government's role to do that long-term thinking on behalf of the population. It is not always the role of the individual to, to be able to work out the best thing long-term to do. It, it's just worth stressing that because we do see these debates happening all the time and they're increasing around the country's net zero strategy. And there's an opportunity here actually to almost accelerate and fast forward our energy transition to a low carbon economy. And there's some, there's some really positive signs of change. So I think it was in 2020, we saw for the first time that electricity generation from renewables in the UK had outperformed energy generation from fossil fuels. You know, that is a huge milestone that we've achieved and we shouldn't be trying to undo that really positive change as a reaction to a difficult situation. We need to build on that and start capitalizing on those those opportunities and that positive change that we've already experienced. I think, Catherine, that's a very good point, that often we don't celebrate our good news. We're so focused on the next problem that people often feel despair. And another thing that you've hinted at that I think is very important that I keep hearing is people grumbling about the costs of these issues and who's going to pay for it. But it's very short term to think about that, isn't it? Because the costs of not acting swiftly and decisively are significantly higher, are they not? Of course. And um, this goes back to my point that the role of government is to, on behalf of the population of the country, is to think through these issues. And yes, we absolutely know the evidence is very strong that the costs of climate change will absolutely dwarf the costs of the UK. In this case, the discussion that's been had recently, the UK acting to achieve its net zero target by 2050. And the other thing to say about this is we are no doubt underestimating the costs of climate change because it is so hard to quantify the impacts that we're seeing on the natural environment and on human health. And Eche is an expert in this area about the difficulties of putting a, a pound sign, if you like, or a dollar sign on what we call natural capital, so the, the services that nature provides to people. And coming back to the point I made earlier, the latest IPCC report is saying that it has underestimated how quickly things are changing and that those impacts are worse than expected. We aren't able actually to put a precise number on those impacts, but we are talking about thousands of deaths last year from things like the extreme heat wave we saw in North America, the horrendous flooding that we saw in Northwest Europe, Billions of animals perishing in things like the Australian wildfires a couple of years ago. Again, the, the heat dome in North America, the estimate from last year was a billion marine animals were killed in that event. How on earth do you put a, put a number on that? This is what we're talking about when we talk about the cost of inaction. And this is just what we're seeing at just over a degree of warming. So we absolutely know without a shadow of a doubt that the costs of acting are not zero. Not only are there huge benefits economic benefits from transitioning to net zero, but we have all these avoided costs eventually if we do this on a global level from avoided climate change impacts as well. And the last thing to say about this is a lot of these impacts are irreversible. So once you get to that, the cost becomes completely unquantifiable because you're never going to get those ecosystems back again. And how can we possibly put a, put a number on that? So to me, such a clear argument, and yet we are still seeing a lot of debate about this. And again, coming back, it is the government's job 
to make that case much clearer, I think. My degree is in oceanography, my PhD. And I first started hearing about climate change in some of my marine geochemistry and paleoclimate lectures back in the mid-80s. And although we discussed the science of it, the time scales that we perceived and communicated were much longer. I very much expected to be long dead before these were issues. Particularly also, and this has really made me want to comment, is ocean acidification. We were still learning that the ocean was endlessly buffered and that we wouldn't really be changing the chemistry of the ocean. And when not that long ago, it became clear that the rates of change, while the scientists creating warnings are still being told they're being overdramatic, but what you're telling us and what we're seeing more and more, if anything, they've been over-conservative. And that is, it's very terrifying, but it's a very normal thing for scientists to be cautious because that is scientific method, is you're testing a hypothesis and you are trying to give your best guess as to what might happen. You're not generally trying to portray a worst-case scenario. And we need to bear that in mind about the scientific method, that it will always take a cautious approach because that is what science does. As you say, I mean, when I started working on climate change back in 2003, I think a lot of us working on it back then thought we would have had it cracked by now in 2022. And one of my first jobs when I started, I started working in international negotiations, was actually working on an initiative to encourage the Russian government to ratify the Kyoto Protocol at the time. And the work we were doing was looking at the economic costs and the economic benefits of climate change. I was thinking about this because it came up again with the latest IPCC report that if you look, there's a really good record of all of the discussions that go around the sign-off of that report. And this idea that climate change is a beneficial thing for Russia was still coming up in 2022 when we were doing research that showed that that is not the case. When you look at the net effect 20 years ago, when you've worked on climate change for a long time, I think time increasingly feels like it's slipping by. And younger people absolutely understand this as well. When I've spoken to, to young people, whether it was at COP26 or some of our young trustees at the Wildlife Trusts, they really do understand the urgency of it, much more so, interestingly, than a lot of adults do, which, which is both very upsetting and really positive that they see the seriousness of the situation. So talking about adults, Catherine, because just as I don't want to put all the responsibility to individuals, I also don't want to put all the responsibility to the bright young generations who are much more informed and interested than perhaps we were when we were their age. What can we do as citizens, consumers, campaigners? This is where I think that the narrative becomes much more positive, actually, and particularly on climate change adaptation and on what we call nature recovery. So not just protecting what we have with nature in the UK, but actually trying to improve it. We've lost about half our biodiversity in the UK over the, the course of the last century. We're one of the most nature depleted countries on the planet in the UK. And it doesn't feel that way to many people when you step outside. Things feel normal. But if you were to compare it to, to the way things looked even in 1970, we've seen a, quite a big decline since then. We are becoming very nature depleted. So the dual climate and nature crises are part of what I do in my in my job now but there is so much we can do as individuals and, and really with both with both themes little actions add up to achieve an incredible amount and that's I think really comforting 
because it doesn't matter how big the thing is that you can do as an individual. There are so many things you can do that can help. And just using the, the wildlife trust themselves as an example. So I mentioned before a lot of individual trusts around the country. There's 46 of them. Uh, and some of them are very small. You know, we have a wildlife trust for Radnorshire. We also have a wildlife trust for Yorkshire, interestingly. So some of them are, are huge and some of them are really tiny. But together, the Wildlife Trust have restored more peatland in the last few years and are restoring more than the government has signed up to for the next five-year period. I mean, that's astonishing. 46,000 hectares of peatland. Together, we're, we're the sixth largest landholder in the UK. We have incredible reach and power as a collective movement of Wildlife Trust. And it's exactly the same concept when you think about your garden, your house, your local area and the actions that you can take to help protect nature and, and improve resilience to climate change and reduce your greenhouse gas emissions as well. Do not buy compost with peat in it, even though the government is so slow in banning peat compost for some unknowable reason. You have the choice not to buy it. There are alternatives available in the market and they're just as good. Yeah, peatlands are a really important carbon store. They're really important for rare species, but they are dug up all over the UK, in Ireland and across the world as well to bag up and sell as peat-based compost. And most compost for your garden will have peat in it unless you are specifically buying peat-free compost. It's been 30 years since the campaign started to have peat in compost bound. And over that time, we did some analysis in the Wildlife Trust a couple of weeks ago shows that the amount of peat in compost hasn't actually dropped significantly over that 30-year period. And we also calculated the greenhouse gas emissions associated with selling that, that compost over that time. It's really astonishing. So yes, the number one thing you can do as a consumer, please do not buy peat-based compost and tell your garden centre, your supermarket, whoever it is, that you will only buy peat-free compost. And we will start to see that change. And as you say, actually, government progress on this has been astonishingly slow over the last 10 years and they've set targets, they've missed them, they've set new targets, they've missed them again. So yeah, that, that could be the number one action from, from this discussion. Thank you. That's very good, your number one action. What are two and three? Another thing which I think is really useful is actually calculate your own carbon footprint. So it's quite easy to do. You can just go online, be curious, go and find you know a good carbon calculator that lets you put in your energy bills, your actual mileage in your car, and actually think about where you want to be. So to be moving towards net zero, we should all be trying to get down to using about two tonnes of carbon per year. My carbon footprint at the minute is around four tonnes. I'm having to take a flight this year to go and visit my dad, who lives in Canada, who I haven't seen for four years. So I'm looking at the emissions in that flight that I have to take to go and visit him and working out what I can do through the rest of the year to make sure I balance that back off again. You know, you have to sit down for a few hours and work out the numbers, but it's not that difficult to do. And it just gives you a much better picture of where you are as an individual in your family. And it, it lets you think about measures you can take because it's not all about buying an electric vehicle, which is out of the price range of quite a few households. Really fantastic thing to do if you can afford it. But, you know, not everybody can afford to do that at the moment. Same with getting a heat pump installed. Really, really useful thing to do. If you can, do look into it. But again, the upfront cost of doing that is, is out of the reach of some people. But there are so many other things you can do. And just having that awareness of your own carbon footprint, I think, is really important. And the third thing, if I can have three, is think about your outside space, your garden, if you have one your local area, and there are so many things you can do to help nature, which will also actually help with climate resilience and reducing emissions as well. So we talked about don't buy peat compost. Generally speaking, 
what we're talking about is trying to connect wild spaces together better, make them bigger and just make them higher quality. So what that means for your garden is let it be a little bit scruffy. It doesn't need to be perfectly tidy and manicured garden. Try not to use pesticides. You don't need them. Our garden is peat free. It's pesticide free. It's quite small. It's only sort of 10 metres by five-ish. But we get 30 species of birds. We get frogs. We get shrews. We get owls. We get lizards. Because we've just done that. We've, we've made it a little bit scruffy. Not too scruffy because my husband wouldn't allow me to do that. But just enough to have some space, some hiding spaces for, for wildlife around the garden and connect your garden to other spaces. So try and, you know, put a hedgehog highway in, put some gaps under your fence. Allow wildlife in and out of your your garden is a really good idea i mentioned digging a pond digging a pond is a brilliant thing to do if you can do it within the space that you've got plant a diverse range of shrubs and trees all these things i mean there's there's hundreds of things and again we'll put a link in the in the notes that people can go and look at and a lot of these things are zero cost so they're not expensive but they do make such a big difference and if everybody starts doing them in an area i know we say this all the time but it really is true the impact can be enormous thank you very much i think that's really helpful and of course, I absolutely love your idea of a more biodiverse garden, although not all neighbors love those choices. My biodiversity garden is not that neat. I love those three, Catherine. Thank you. I think at the very beginning, you said we were talking as if climate change is something else, yet another thing we need to worry about. But in every decision we make on daily life, there is an element to how can I reduce my my contribution to climate change or how can I adapt what I buy, what, how I live, what I invest in a changing climate. So we need to integrate it in all facets of our lives. And also, I want to go back to it so that we're not just machines that buy things. We also contribute and collaborate with each other. We vote, like local elections are coming up in the UK in May. I'm sure there are elections coming up in all the other countries people listen to us from. Do you read the manifestos of the people who want your vote? What do they say about climate change? What do they say about mitigating our impacts? How do you think they're going to contribute, your political representatives going to contribute to climate change adaptation. And also we can volunteer, right? Because we can volunteer for Wildlife Trust. I don't think London is a wild place. So like I thought maybe Wildlife Trust didn't exist in London, but there is one. There is a Wildlife Trust wherever you live in the country. And you, you can be a member, you can volunteer, you can do all sorts of things and, and support the work that they're doing if you are not able to you know, get out and do things yourself. That's absolutely fine. And in my company, my team pre-COVID, we went out a few times to doing volunteering work for conservation charities, which is a great away day. You don't have to play silly corporate games people develop. You can go out and, you know, get muddy and tired and get, you know, bitten by mosquitoes or something. But it's fun. Like you actually, by the end of the day, you've done something, you've touched soil and you really remembered why you're working in this field for my colleagues. But also there are volunteering options for wildlife trusts and many other NGOs, of course. Just coming back to the point about MPs, and this is something that, that's really central to the work that we do at Wildlife Trust as well. I think people underestimate the value of contacting your MP and telling them what you think. And being aware of what your MP is doing is, is really helpful. Today, we've seen several MPs who are, let's say, part of the group that is looking at this scrutiny of net zero target that is pro-fracking, pro-increased gas use. 
asking parliamentary questions in Parliament. Now, do you know if that is your MP doing that? Do you agree with it? If you don't agree with it, then you should probably tell them. And these things are, are really helpful. And one of the activities that we support in the Wildlife Trust is contacting your MP about big environmental issues of the day. We did a big campaign on what we call neonics, neonicotinoids, which are a highly toxic pesticide, which is banned across the EU, was banned in the UK in 2018. And the government has reintroduced it under emergency measures to treat sugar beets because we've had a mild winter, which means the aphid population is going to be higher, which means the sugar beet is at increased risk um, of this disease called yellows virus. Now, this, this particular pesticide, a teaspoon of it can kill the estimates are something like a billion bees. I mean, it is, it is incredibly, incredibly toxic stuff. We do not think it should be used under any circumstances in this country. It also stays in the environment afterwards. It is a highly nasty pesticide. There was actually a parliamentary debate about it a few months ago, and we had a whole social media campaign about contacting your MP to attend that parliamentary debate and to ask them to ask the government why it is authorising the use of this pesticide against the advice of its own scientific advisors. So these things are really important just to highlight when they're happening because it's so it's all too easy to kind of see it one day in the news and then just carry on and actually forget about it. And that pesticide is probably now being used right now on seed across the UK at the beginning of the growing season. So that contacting your MP and, and being a voice, you know, it can be quite a quick thing to do. I think it really does have quite a big impact. I was in a climate change local stakeholder meeting yesterday in Kent with Lord Devon, and he's the chair of the climate change committee. He was an MP and minister himself in the past, and he said he made this point several times about contacting your MP. And he, in fact, went further and he said, turn up at the surgery. There should be no member of parliament's surgery that goes without climate change and nature being talked about. There being someone asking, searching questions about these topics. He was saying that, especially to the young people when we visited the high school, saying because no MP ignore a young person turning up in their surgery because they turn up so rarely <laughs> that when they do turn up, they have something very important to say. So do turn up. Thank you, Catherine, for your time and this fascinating discussion. I know we've really just touched the tip of the iceberg while icebergs remain to be touched. I think what we learned today is everything's interconnected. We often hear about a, a false dichotomy, that it's a choice between pretty butterflies and nature and the economy and our survival. And it's important to remember these are deeply intertwined. It's not just the financial impact. It's our ability to produce food, to breathe air, to have a livable climate. And you've hinted at a number of those issues. It seems dramatic, but even our, our careful and circumspect scientists are starting to scream very loud. I have colleagues that say we should no longer talk about climate change. We should call it climate chaos because that's what it is. And maybe that will get people's attention. As we try to address these things, often the focus is on costs. There are also a number of opportunities that Catherine's pointed out. And the cost of doing nothing is astronomically more than the cost of doing something. We need, though, to seek a balance between urgency and despair. The feeling of inevitability 
in climate change could demoralize people rather than inspiring them to act. Catherine's talked about a number of things we can do, and there will be much more in the links to her webpage. Many of our other episodes have also talked about things you can do. Your choices matter, but we can't do it alone. We need to demand that our government serves us and serves the future, and that actions don't keep being pushed aside by the latest crises. Catherine suggested that the crises that are actually driven and deeply interlinked with these problems, these are not separate issues, and we need to start thinking systemically. Question assumptions, call your NP, Check your climate footprint. If you need to fly, what choices can you make to offset that? Don't buy peat. Don't buy peat. Don't buy peat. And make some space for wildlife. It may be a little messy, but it will pay you back in joy and the future. One last thing to say on that is, you know, at the moment, it's easy to feel very despairing about the state of the world. There's a lot of bad things happening at the moment. But the, this balance point I was talking about at the beginning of our discussion, that balance point will tip when the good actions start to outweigh the bad. So don't give up and keep doing all of those little positive things because they do add up over time. Thank you for listening. Thank you to the rest of the team, Neil McCune and Anna Gunn. You can find more information about this and other episodes on our website, jointhedotspodcast.com. And we'd love to hear from you on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook.